Welcome to episode 278 with my guest, Eli L. Haber. He is a therapist in training who works with at-risk youth. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Uh, go check out our website. You can join the forum. You can read blogs, guest blogs. You can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey uh, on the show. Uh, they're totally anonymous. We don't even take down your IP address. So you can share whatever you want to get off your, uh, your chest or talk about or... Uh, a lot of people find the the um, filling out the surveys to be a very cathartic experience. Um, I just got back from Portland where I did live wire radio um, with uh, Luke Burbank. It's an NPR show that uh, that he does out of there, and they flew me up there to be on the show because Luke um, is a listener of the show and he likes it. And it was the greatest experience. First of all, I love Portland, but. Um, um, He's just a great guy, and, and I'm not just saying that because I know he's probably listening. Um, it was just one of those, one of those, um, one of those times when you just—I don't know how to describe it—but you feel like this is where your life is supposed to be, and um, and it was just beautiful. Just the whole thing was 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 beautiful. Some some. Uh, People uh, that listen to the podcast came out to see it, and um, it's just from start to finish a beautiful, beautiful trip, and uh, love you, love you, Portland. And if you guys have never listened to uh, Livewire Radio or Luke's uh, podcast, Too Beautiful to Live, uh, check both of them out. He's a very, very funny and uh, and deep guy. And if you're listening, uh, Luke, fuck you. You, um, you mean nothing to me. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't let a sincere moment hang there. It just felt like, uh, you understand, you get it. I don't need to explain to you. And if anybody, uh, is coming to this podcast from, uh, listening to live wire radio, uh, I welcome you and, uh, put on your prepared to be disappointed pants. I know you keep them in a trunk at the foot of the bed, put those babies on and, uh, let's get to it. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This was filled out by, uh, actually all of these are. Um, this was filled out by Kitty Friend and uh, about, um, she struggles with depression, OCD, P PTSD, and anger issues. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, purposely hiding everything about myself and working on the perfect outer shell of strength and stability. Then breaking down alone, feeling of no value and self-harming because no one notices the pain I am in. How can you not see it? How can you not see through this act? Never mind. I'm not worth worrying about or caring for anyways. I bet there's a lot of people that uh, that relate to that. Thank you for sharing that. And isn't it crazy how, how we, we would rather keep that going than to risk the vulnerability of reaching out to somebody and saying, I'm in pain. Please help me. I get it. I get it. It's so scary to ask for help. 
Um, Vault Dweller uh, writes, uh, who, uh, Vault Dweller is agender, and they write about their depression. My greatest fear is that one day the dark cloud will be lifted, and I will finally believe that I have a future. And it's only then that someone will finally get around to murdering me in an alley. That is so fantastic. Um, Another issue of being a closeted transgender person, reading the comments on any bathroom bill article is my new favorite form of self-harm. Sadly true. Sadly true. Um, Mega Man writes about her anxiety. I recognize that the thing I'm nervous about is irrational, but it will surely happen and it will surely kill me. Uh, about her codependency. I haven't told him how I really feel for five years. What's the rest of my life as long as he stays with me? Thank you for that. Um, this is by Sebi, uh, who's a trans male, and uh, he writes uh, about his depression. It's like I'm fighting a vacuum that's trying to suck out my heart. Uh, and about his spouse having schizophrenia. I can fight off aliens and protect you from spies, but I can't tell you that they're not really there. And about his anxiety. The fear of saying something stupid is stronger than the fear of being alone forever. I fear that I'm inadequate. Fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness. Is convincing myself. I'm so alone. Why. Hypervigilant. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with uh, Eli L. Hopper who is a therapist intern uh, locally here in Los Angeles. And he sent me a nice email, uh, I guess it would have been a couple of months ago, um, saying that you listened to the show. And you, when you said that you worked with at-risk youth uh, in South Los Angeles, I thought, man, that is somebody whose experience I would really love to hear. So you cleared it with your supervisors to yes, to, to come be able to to talk. Uh, thank a uh, thank you to them for uh, turning you loose to fuck things up. Hey. Um, <laughs> where where would be a good place to give people a picture of? Uh, maybe let's start with what the myths are about at risk kids. Oh, perfect. Well, one of the- the biggest risks and uh, I have a speech impediment, so bear with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of I'm just going to move this in a little bit closer to you. Sure. One of uh, the biggest misconceptions or myths is when I walk into a home because uh, all of my services are in home and at school. It's always out in the field. It's never you know in an office. Setting. Oh, and and is it uh, something where they volunteer to have you come, or it's mandatory that you come? Uh, both, both. So uh, a lot of our cases are, are voluntary, and a lot of other ones are uh, court-mandated. 
by uh, DCFS. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when I come in as a therapist, a lot of these families have the idea, oh, here, here is the magic key. He's going to fix all of our problems. Everything is going to be solved. And they, you know, they don't really know what therapy is. They don't really know what my role as a therapist is. And they just think that I'm like a backup parent. And that I'm going to fix all of these issues because it's never, ever the parent's fault, right? It's always the kid's fault. It's always the client's fault. Point the finger at the client. It's never their fault. So I come in and they just think everything is going to, you know, work itself out in like a matter of days. And that is definitely not how therapy is. And especially with at-risk children, I am dealing with children that are um, uh, at risk of being sent to juvenile hall. Uh, that are at risk of being sent to foster care. And, uh, and a lot of these parents just don't get it <laughs> that, uh, you know, it is a whole family concept. It is not only the clients, uh, uh, doing, uh, that is leading up to this, um, transition out of the home. So that is the biggest misconception. And it, you know, and it took me so long, it took me so long to understand or to just step back and say, you know what, this is not my rule. Sometimes I get sucked in to the families and that would, you know, that's like my biggest one-on-one with my supervisor was Eli, don't get sucked in, step back. You know, you're going to, uh, you're going to uh, get sucked in, into other uh, family system, but Sometimes you got to step back. You have to reintroduce yourself. You have to make clear boundaries. You have to, you know, let them know what they're getting themselves into and, you know, uh, work from there. But that is the number one problem that I had of, of, of being a therapist is, well, it's your fault. He's still doing this. Well, <laughs> did you? <laughs> it's your fault as right, a therapist? Right. It's your fault. Why isn't, you know, why isn't, you know, Billy doing this better? Well, are you using the tools that I talk to you? A uh, family therapy? Did you, you know, uh, he actually requested this from you. Are you following through? No, I have no time. You know, I'm busy. <laughs> well, you know, you can't just leave it up to the therapist to fix everything. You know, it needs to be a team effort. So that is the number one issue that I had going into. What When you therapy. say boundaries, like what are some boundaries that uh, that they kind of want you to cross? What do they want you to move in uh, <laughs> with them? <laughs> pretty much, actually. You know, they uh, uh, they want me to be the parent. They want me to, uh, someone, uh, someone told me, you know what, can you just like threaten him? I said, no, I'm not going to threaten, you know, just cause he won't clean his room or whatever. I'm not going to threaten to hospitalize a, you know, a, a, a child. That's not how it works. You're, you know, now he's going to live off of fear. <laughs> like I cannot, you know, I cannot threaten. I can't do their homework for them. I'm not their tutor. I, you know, I'm just there, honestly, just as a person to listen, to help them connect the dots on what's going on in their lives and just be there for them as someone that's there. And, you know, the parents don't get that. They think that it's going to be a two week fix, you know, of 16 years in the making that I can just come in and fix it all. What's the most uh, common uh, issue that you see that kind of is breaking down the, the family system that, that needs to be repaired? Uh, communication. Communication. A lot of the parents just 
just do not know how to communicate with uh, their children. It's easy, you know, if uh, when I was growing up and if I did something wrong, I would be told, you know, you're doing this wrong. Can you do this? Or, you know, like, hey, uh, 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 can you please fix uh, this problem? But when I come into a home, it's just constant yelling, no praise, no positive. There's, you know, uh, a lot of these homes that I go into, there's just no love in the home. It's just straight yelling and, you know, the parents, oh, you, uh, a lot of the times the parents just demand perfect outcomes, <laughs> you know, like clean the house, do this, you're grounded. There's no, there's no positivity and, you know, all, you know, uh, 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 the only thing uh, the client hears is this negative and there's no positiveness, there's no positivity, there's no love. It's just really bad communication skills. Are you able to work with them so that they can become more positive people? I mean, do do people change in that way? Because, you know, as I heard you saying that, I'm like, a lot of people that are that way, their blind spot is so big that unless they want to do intensive work and work on themselves and their own deeply buried anger and abandonment and all their other stuff, they got nothing to give. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Right. So, uh, I uh, fortunately work at a clinic that provides me a big team and part of our services, uh, we actually can provide the parent with their own therapist. So uh, instead of working with, you know, uh, the parent and the client and the rest of the family, uh, sometimes it's better for them to hear it from another person. And I also work with a team. I work with a parent partner that works also with the parents and gives them parenting skills. And I work with another person that kind of focuses on more of like the family resources. So like we're, we are uh, more of a team, but a lot of times uh, the biggest thing I hear from parents that are not compliant and, you know, that are just stubborn and just think that, you know, they're not the problem. I always hear Eli uses the same thing that the previous therapist said. Well, there's a reason, you know, like, like, yeah, it's just uh, sometimes you just can't get through to them. I would imagine, too, if somebody is a total narcissist there, there's nothing you can do. Right. Right. And, you know, and uh, sometimes, well, a lot of times when I I, uh, approach parents that are just putting up a giant wall. I just step away from the parents and I just work with the client and I just, the, ki- the you know, kid. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there for the kid. I'm not the parents therapist. Do you ever tell kids, um, look, you're in the care of somebody that cannot own up to their own issues. You're just going to have to put your head down and wait this out till you're 18 and then lay rubber out of uh, here. If it, it, uh, if the child is ready, I work, uh, uh, the population that I work with, uh, the age group is, uh, my youngest is six and my oldest is 15. So, you know, uh, you really can't say that to like a six year old or seven year old because their life, you know, their, their mode of thinking is, Oh, I want to play video games <laughs> or like, I don't see anything, you know? So, uh, uh, I uh, uh, I have a client where I had that conversation, and you know it it it, uh, it led where he eventually had to go into uh, placement, and then I foster, talked, foster home, mm-hmm. and uh, I would have the conversation. 
it's not you. You know, it's just uh, your parents aren't equipped with the right parenting tools. And in the span of, you know, whatever, six months, a year, two years, uh, we are going to try and give them the proper tools. And when you come back, hopefully, you know, they are ready. So I really try not to continue pointing the finger at the client because a lot of times we call it pointing the um, uh, identified patient. You know, families just love to point the finger. Everything that they've gone through doesn't matter. It's always, you know, one person's fault. And a lot of times it's, it is the kids, you know, that are getting these fingers put on them. And it's very sad because their whole life they think, you know, there's something wrong with them, that they're the problem, that, that it's their fault, that everything is going, you know. The, the transference of shame from one generation to the next is so profound. Right. Is, talk about why it's so hard to break that cycle of um, shame transference. Oh, it's, you know, it, it, it is so, it's so difficult to work with, uh, you know, a lot of these parents because it goes in one ear and makes a wrong turn and out through the nose. It like doesn't ever, you know, uh, 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 a lot of parents just don't want to hear that they did something wrong. And it's, it's so hard to work with the parent, but, uh, uh, with the ch- child, you know, it's, it's, it's a very long process of just making, making them aware that, uh, you know, it's not them and that, you know, I uh, try to, uh, explore shame with them. So it, it, it is a long process and in community mental health, it's so hard to actually work with the client and get to where they need to be because everything is, is based on, you know, timeframes and deadlines and, you know, uh, uh, my program, I believe, is like uh, two years uh, for the client. And, you know, they expect in two years, the client is like, you know, good as new. And that doesn't happen. So you just have to focus on things that, you know, that could help the client kind of, uh, you know, uh, be more positive and, and uh, uh, try uh, uh, try to understand about what's going on in his family. Have you ever had a kid that was taken from the home, the parents were taught tools for a couple of years, the kid came back, and then the the family functioned? Not yet. I've only been at my clinic for about 14 months, 15 months, 14, 15. Uh, so have, have, have you heard anybody else ha- have that success story? Uh, from my clinic, I haven't really... I. I don't think I've 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 encountered a therapist with that situation, but I'm currently in that situation. So uh, I'll let you know in a couple of months how that okay. goes. <laughs> but, yeah, right. Tell both yeah. the the parent and the client they're welcome to blame me if they'd like. <laughs> Absolutely, my shame's not going anywhere. Right. So I'm I'm ready to hold on to it and uh, um, give me a a kind of a stereotypical example of um, either an actual real-life case, maybe you're not allowed to do that, or you're not allowed to do that. So uh, maybe a generic kind of amalgamation or a typical scenario you see over and over again. It's it's pretty much uh, the same thing. I walk in the home. And I, and how have you been alerted at this point? The kid's acting up in school, or he got in trouble with the law, or... Well... How do I try not to go on a rant? So there's uh, two types of 
uh, scenarios. And one is where I walk in and uh, school has, you know, um, alerted the parent that I, uh, uh, the client's behavior uh, at school uh, 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 is too much. Uh, he's too aggressive at school. He doesn't listen. He's defiant. And then uh, the, uh, 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 the school has an IEP. What's that? Uh, an IEP is uh, is uh, it is a plan uh, from the school directed at the client where he has trouble uh, with his current curriculum at school. So it's supposed to uh, develop a plan of how to uh, make the client successful at school. So it's like the client and like the whole school administration trying to figure out, okay, so this person, you know, uh, doesn't listen. So how do we get them to uh, uh, listen? A lot of times, you know, they put in an aid with the client, you know, uh, they give him uh, easier homework assignments. So, so uh, a lot of times out of the IEP meetings, uh, uh, it, um, uh, a therapist, uh, could be a referred um, or uh, the client is referred to a clinic or sometimes Department of uh, Social Services, a uh, DCFS alerts a uh, clinics and, uh, and uh, uh, that client comes uh, to us. But the majority of times I get called, I go and I uh, meet with the family and it's typically the same routine. It is Billy, Billy won't listen to me. Billy won't listen to me. He won't do his homework. He he's acting up in school. He's not doing you know. Uh, he's being a, a disruptive in school. Uh, help. And I said, okay, all right. So I I talked to Billy. Billy's Billy's fine. I talked to the parents, and the parents say, well, he doesn't do anything. Well, uh, is there like a reward system in place? Do we do we do we prepare him for school? <laughs> to which they say, does him not getting his ass kicked? Count as a reward, <laughs> right? Right. Well, you, you know, uh, a lot of times they're like, "Well, we tried that. We tried. We tried telling him we we're going to take him to the park if he does his homework, but he, you know, uh, but he doesn't listen." Okay. Well, did you try keep on you know, following through? Did you make them easier? Did you make did you make the process of getting a reward easier? No, no, no. He won't do it. <laughs> okay. So now uh, they expect me to like make make him listen to his parents. And this is before me knowing anything about the case. You know, I don't know how Billy's parents, you know, um, I don't know their parenting styles. I don't know his history with the parents. I walk in and they just immediately point the finger and tell me to fix it. <laughs> Would you say that's 90% of the cases? Oh, uh, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much 90% of the cases. <laughs> and what percentage of the kids when you come in want to work with you? Oh, great question. Excellent question. So... With my population from the ages of eight to, I want to say, 11, absolutely don't want therapy. They, uh, first of all, they don't know what it is. They think they're in trouble. So so immediately what that means is they're not going to trust me. If they think they're in trouble, they're not going to say anything to me. You know, They think I'm just a social worker trying to take them away. And I would imagine also a lot of the parents say, don't you tell him. Such and such. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So fear is just, you know, as soon as I walk in the door, everyone thinks I'm a social worker and they think that I'm supposed to, you know, I take them out of the home. But honestly, my goal as a therapist in my program and my clinic, our number one goal is to keep 
the client home and at school. So it's totally opposite to what the parents believe. And the parents... And what is the technical name of you... You know, as opposed to a social worker, what? A clinical therapist. Okay. Yeah, clinical therapist, a marriage and family therapist intern. Uh, but uh, but I, I meant within the, the, the role of that, because I know what a, you know, LMFT is and, right. and a clinical therapist, but I thought it might have a, a different term because you're within the ed- education slash uh, judicial right. uh, system. Our title uh, uh, is clinical therapist, and our role is just to, Listen to the client, help them connect the dots of what's going on. Try, I uh, try to figure out the family dynamics and, you know, help the client kind of, uh, reach his goals that, uh, me, him and, uh, his parents kind of, uh, agree on. That's really my role is, uh, I go into a home. We, uh, all of us have to figure out a goal. And uh, I have to work with that client uh, towards that goal. A lot of times uh, these goals are to reduce aggressive behavior from five times a week to one times a week, uh, to increase pro-social skills. Now, when you say aggressive behavior, getting in fights at school, oh, being, punching teachers, right, everything, pulling so, a gun. Yeah, I mean, physical aggressive uh, behavior is like hitting, grabbing, kicking. Throwing tantrums that can last three hours that just tear things off the wall and kick and break windows and wow. all that fun stuff. And, uh, uh, but you know, a lot of times I walk in and, you know, the parents kind of, I don't want to say overreact, but, you know, I've, uh, um, um, I've had a client where, you know, the parents are like, oh, he's, you know, he's horrible. He does all this stuff. He's, you know, he doesn't listen. He's really aggressive. And I've been like working with him for a long time and I've seen none of that. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot of times, it, uh, these parents just love to point the finger, but you know, these kids, uh, you know, I nevertheless, they still need someone to talk to because when I leave, they go home and they're back in that negative environment. So I'm just there to provide them the tools of how to get through that negative environment and just to let them know that it's, you know, that it's not them. And and the perspective to know that this isn't a represent, representation of the entire world. Right. I, I think that's the thing that can fuck kids up the most right. uh, is thinking the rest of my life is going to be like this. Somebody blaming me. Absolutely. No safety, safety. Nobody I can trust. Safety is one of the biggest things that I have to uh, talk to my clients about. Safety and trust and shame. And, you know, uh, and uh, I'm coming off like really negative. But like, honestly, like every one of uh, these clients, whether or not uh, they want therapy or not, uh, uh, they need it because they're going back to these negative environments. So uh, I love what I do. I a lot of percentage of my cases are just set up for failure and set up for no progress. But, you know, out of like three, you know, uh, uh, out of five cases, there's three that, you know, there's not going to be progress. Nobody wants treatment. But there's those two that out of that week, oh, it's a wonderful session. Progress is being made. They're communicating with their parents. Things are changing. Wow, what's that feel like on your oh, end? Oh, amazing. You know, that happens like twice a week. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know uh, when it does, it's, you know, uh, uh, it keeps me going. You know, uh, there, uh, there are some times where I have a full caseload a day. I see like four or five clients and like, Nobody wants it. Like I have cases where like the family doesn't even want therapy and like the kid doesn't want therapy and I'm there 
trying to sell something that nobody wants. <laughs> and like, like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, oh boy, this is so hard. But you know what? You just have to focus on the positives. So the younger kids are almost always opposed to therapy. And you said for like six or eight to 11, uh, 12 and over, they're a little more open to yes. the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, 12 and, uh, 12 and over, I feel like are, are more, uh, are, are more insightful and they, you know, uh, they kind of get it where it's not them that, you know, a lot of times it's the whole family. And uh, a lot of these kids that I work with have gone through so much. It's so, you know, it's very unthinkable to what they've gone through. Can you can you give me some examples? Oh, well, you know, I work with the population in South Central. So a lot of uh, a lot of substance abuse, a lot of gang related uh, issues, a lot of, uh, you know, single parents, uh, uh, raising a family of five, a lot of financial stressors. So, you know, it's, 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 it's just very tough with, uh, working with a population where, you know, they don't know what's going to happen the next day. I work with a lot of clients where they just move around because they just can't afford where they're living and they just try to try to find jobs all the time. And it's just not a stable environment for these children. So, but uh, again, the, uh, there are others where uh, we provide them uh, resources. Uh, the clinic that I work for, we do have a person on my team that helps them find like uh, affordable housing. And we do actually provide uh, with like a house to, or um, uh, uh, a deposit for an apartment and first month's rent. So like we really try to help these families. If, if somebody is in uh, L.A. and I, I take it this is L.A. County. Mm-hmm. If somebody's in L.A. County and they need either a family therapist or there's a financial stressor, where's the best place that they can call or reach out to to find out what's available? Can they call 211? Is that still a, a viable thing or is that? 211, uh, I believe the best way is to call uh, the uh, Department of Child uh, and Family Services mm-hmm. and uh, just ask for the um, uh, the closest resources around them. There are tons, tons of community mental health uh, clinics uh, available they're, that are free. Yeah, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're free. Uh, none of none of my clients pay a dime. It's all under Medi-Cal. It is it is you know a very free and very very convenient. And, and what it's if, everywhere. And what if somebody isn't in a family system and they want it, or is that something that you never deal with? Uh, I don't think I've, 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 I've dealt with that. I know, I know that there's a lot of affordable, uh, individual, uh, therapists you can go on, you know, there's a lot of websites like psychology today. There's a list well, you of therapists. can Google, you can Google Lofi therapy in the name of your town or city. And mm-hmm. a lot of times that'll bring up stuff. You can dial two one one, but I thought you might have an insight yeah. into specifically in Los Angeles where, cause we have, we have a lot of listeners here in, in yeah. Los Angeles. I, I, uh, uh, honestly, I would just Google, you know, a community mental health clinic. What about, um, getting, uh, into a, an Uber car, just driving around till something looks good. <laughs> 
You know, that is like my biggest suggestion to these families. <laughs> you know, a lot of families have a lot, like financial stressors. And they're like, oh, we can't find a job. We can't. It's impossible. And I always suggest to them, hey, why don't you try Uber? You know, anyone, oh, to drive? Yeah. Like, why yeah. don't you just drive and make extra cash and... You know, support your family. And you know what? Again, it goes in one year and gets lost. Well, if they don't have a car, that would be difficult. Right, right. Well, of course. But like, you know, uh, most of uh, uh, every time I suggest it, they have like a a doable car. And it's, you know, but, you know, sometimes they just they're just stuck in the system where they just they just they just think that everything is, uh, you know, against them and it's never going to work. You know, cynicism and lack of hope are maybe two of the most dangerous things. Uh, they're, and yet they're so believable when we're, when we're struck, stuck uh, in it. I want to ask you some questions, um, that, uh, listeners submitted. Uh, what level of training do therapists have working with suicidal adolescents to draw out the level of despair in order to direct to further treatment before an attempt or completion is made. Um, that, that was submitted by a friend of mine, Stu, who, who lost uh, his son to, to suicide um, a little over a year ago. Right. Well, well um, suicide is, oh, that is like my biggest fear as a therapist is uh, you know, working with, with, uh, with a client that just, just uh, constantly talks about suicide and has a plan and, you know, uh, ideation and, you know, but, uh, 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 the training that we go through it honestly is, uh, is very bare. We have to seek our own trainings a lot of the times. Specifically around suicidal ideation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in general. So, uh, as a therapist in training, I went to grad school for two years, uh, I did that. I went to a practicum. I did my hours. I uh, got no training there. Uh, only just uh, thrown by fire and given a supervisor. Uh, now I work at a clinic. Same thing. I, you know, I start. I, I don't get any EBPs, which are evidence based um, trainings. Uh, and uh, anytime I have an issue that I'm not. Um, really uh, educated on I have to talk to my supervisor and then uh, we go from there but honestly with uh, with suicide the first thing I do with with uh, a person with uh, suicidal thoughts and ideation is you know uh, we talk about it we talk about what's going on Uh, I have them do a suicide contract uh, I uh, refer them uh, numbers to suicide hotlines if they ever get the urge or, you know, if they ever think about it. And uh, I increase my services with them because sometimes they just need someone to talk to and just uh, to let it out. But it is it is so hard to just, you know, uh, walk, walk away from a client with a suicidal ideation. You know, uh, you just can't say, all right, 60 minutes are up. I'll, I'll see you next time. You know, it, it uh, doesn't work that way. So with a person uh, expressing suicidal thoughts, uh it is it you know it is uh, something where you just have to go in and just listen and just be very very cautious of what you say and just uh, uh try to align with them and figure out what's going on i would imagine the basis of any progress has got to be that kid 
feeling heard and seen and validated on some level mm-hmm. because i can't th- i can't think of an issue that at its core isn't a, some lack of sense of self right or you know right and uh, sometimes you know uh, or a lot of times people <laughs> You know, just kind of have their magical thinking and they just think that everyone is just against them and that uh, they're worthless and, you know, they just don't, they just don't believe in themselves and they just get clouded with everyone's negativity. And, you know, uh, that's where a therapist steps in and tries to, tries to, uh, connect the dots and try to, you know, have them focus on the positives and that, you know, um, uh, I always say, and I took this from, uh, the Buddhist, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. He had a great book on anger. Uh, and I love his metaphor. It says, you know, uh, there are cloudy days. It is, you know, uh, there are some cloudy days, but you know, you just have to wait for it. The cloud will pass and it'll be sunny again. And I just say that with all my clients that are, you know, really in that dark place. I know that it's, you know, uh, so much easier to say than actually go through. But, you know, that's all that we can do as therapists is just, you know, try to give them that little hope, try to give them that little sunlight. Patience and self-compassion are so so huge when somebody is trying to get their life on track um patience and hope seems to be the first two casualties of of mental illness or family dysfunction Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. it's it's it leaves me speechless sometimes how (laughs) how easily it can just evaporate and i find it you know with myself sometimes just uh i get into a place where i'm feeling unmotivated and nothing is appealing and i think this is how i'm going to be for the rest of my life and i have to remember now i've been through these troughs before Mm -hmm. but it's scary when sometimes those troughs um last for a long time because you're like i can't handle six more months of not enjoying my hobbies or whatever um so i can't imagine how challenging it must be when you're talking to a kid who's never who's grew who grew up in a trough Mm -hmm. and has never experienced Mm -hmm. any type of recovery right and uh, i tell my clients that i am stupidly positive uh, as a therapist, you have to develop to be a very good listener. And I, you know, whenever a client, even when they're not in that kind of depressed kind of state, I just find just the little positives that they dropped like months ago that like they don't even remember saying. And I bring it up and they're like, Oh, oh, okay. That's right. I'm, I, you know, like I'm not really. A useless, you know, I did do this once. Maybe I'm capable of doing it again. Maybe, you know, so like, it's just really important just to dig back and just, just kind of step back from their kind of, um, a dark state and just kind of be that positive light that says, Hey, uh, 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 remember, remember when you were in this positive state. Remember this helped last time. So, you know, you just have to dig deep. You have to stand back and just kind of be like the outside uh, spectator. Yeah. Um, even though this is a different dynamic because it's it's a support group and I'm not a therapist, right. but something that I think is, is important is when somebody's new to one of the support groups I go in and they've been coming for six months and I see them beginning to change is I always try to let them know that I see them growing because so often 
we are the last persons to see the change in us because we live with ourselves every day (laughs) and we can be so unaware that we've changed for the positive. So anybody out there listening, if you have a friend who was working on him, his or herself, and you see that progress, one of the best things you can do is their friend is to give them positive feedback and let them know that you're, you see that they're, they're growing and that it's, you know, fires you up. Right. And also, you know, I'm also guilty of just ignoring everything that I've done. You know, uh, sometimes at work, I get into funks of weeks where, you know, I've just not connecting with my clients and I think everything is like, you know, just, just not working out. And I question like, am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right field? And then I have weekly supervisions uh, with my supervisor and he tells me, what are you, an idiot? Like, you've gone so far with this client, you know, like six months ago, he wasn't doing this. And like now, you know, now he's able to. So like, I totally understand. Like I, you know, sometimes I just ignore every, every positive thing that I've done and just get, get sunk into, you know, uh, into uh, my current state. And it's just, it's just uh, so hard to just think of the positives. Uh, but luckily I have that supervisor there that says, you're an idiot. Wake up. Look what you're doing. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you're a good therapist. So that's very important. And, you know, I'm lucky to have a great supervisor, but you know, that's, uh, that's what it takes. It takes someone just to point out the positives. Why is it so hard for us to find a balance between being a self-flagellating person and a narcissist? It's <laughs> like the, those are pretty wide uprights to kick a, a, a football between right but (laughs) it's so fucking hard right it's so fucking hard to not either be the king or a piece of shit right oh there there's it is so hard to find that middle (laughs) it's so hard um how does the therapist uh, help kids who don't have any family support. Well, I think you've kind of touched on uh, right. On that. You, you just got to get. You know, a lot of times, my biggest advice when, or uh, my first piece of advice that was just gold to mm-hmm. me was, you know, I would walk in and like the client would test me or have a huge tantrum and you know throw everything, kick everything, and say "fuck you," get the fuck out of my house. And I literally had a client. That would scream at me for a whole hour, and as I was leaving, because you know I don't want to leave before my hour is up. I don't want to say you win. You know I want to give them the reaction that they never get from their parents. I want to give them the opposite reaction that they get from everybody else. That's what I want to give my clients. So you know I I had a client where he was just very upset and angry and he would clap when I would leave and he would walk me out to my car and clap and say, Hey, fat ass, go, go away. (laughs) But you know what? And, uh, you know, I didn't stop because, you know, she's, uh, some clients test you. They don't, you know, they want to see what you're going to do just like everyone else in their life. You know, just like everyone, uh, uh, it's like everyone else in their life has given up on them, has said, "Oh, you're a bad kid. You're, you are fucked up. You are not going to live up to any potential. You're horrible." You know what? Me as a therapist, I'm there for an hour. I don't care if you're going to be engaging or not, but I'm there for you. And if you want to talk, great. Let's get to work. If not, well, I'm still going to be here. I'm going to be here next week. I'm going to be here the week after. And you know what? 
it's uh, it, it's it is your decision, and I'm gonna be annoying, and I I I don't care if you clap until I go to the car. I don't care if you curse me out. I, you know, I have techniques where I would just you know, I had a client that would really test me, and uh, you know, anytime he was doing whatever he was doing, he was like making a big tantrum, and he was just like doing something. And I would just look on the wall and I'd be like, hey, that's a great poster you have. Isn't that awesome? It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, get mad at me. It's like, why? Why would I be mad at you? I'm not your parent, you know? I'm just there to give them the opposite reaction of what they're used to. And did you ever see that break a kid's shell open? Oh, all the time. Yeah, it's it's a lot of times. You, you know, you just have to stick through it. I've had client, a lot of clients, because a lot of these clients, it's not their decision. It's their parents' decision that they're in therapy. So, like, I have to be stern and I have to, to you know, uh, my supervisor says it best is they put up a wall. So what are you going to do? You're going to go around the wall. Right, you're going to just always be there. You're not going to give up, and eventually they're going to be like, "Oh my God, Eli's such an asshole." He comes home when I don't go home because I'm avoiding him. He comes to my school. He's always there. Why? You know what? Fine. You know what? Uh, one day I'll have a bad day and I'll talk to Eli about it, and then boom, there it is. <laughs> uh, I had a kid that was just so hard, just so hard to engage. Didn't want to engage. And then, you know, I just aligned with them. And and I was getting irritated myself. I was like, what? You know, every week I go in, he just curses me out. Like, you know, I was like, man, I, you know, I, I can't wait just to transfer him over to another therapist. I told my supervisor that. And he was like, why are you giving up on him? Like, there's a reason why he's pissed off at you. So the number, you know, uh, the first thing I did was I aligned myself. I like listened. I said, why is this kid so mad at me? And then I figured it out. It's because everyone in his life just comes and goes. He's had therapists as his left. And, you know, I just stuck there. And, like, we've been having amazing sessions. And we're connecting things. And it's just great. You just have to stick with them. You have to give them the opposite reaction that everyone has been giving them their whole life. So it, it sounds almost like the the kid is sure, you know, they're going to be abandoned, so why don't I make you leave first so at least I have some control? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're the uh, you're puppet not, masters. You're not going to fire me. I quit. Right. right. They're, they're the puppet masters. They A, a lot of these kids has had, have had things happen without their control. You know, parents have you know gone and left them, and, and they want to be in control, and, you know, they, they, uh, you know, they just want to be the puppet masters. Uh, let me ask you another question uh, somebody asked on Facebook. Uh, does at-risk include runaways who came to L.A. looking for stardom and local kids who are out on the street thanks to abusive situations at home? Uh, if so, I wonder how my friend's place would rate. Uh, for those of you that don't live in Los Angeles, um, my friend's place is a, is a charity that takes in uh, kids that are uh, on the streets. Mm. We do not work with uh, kids on the streets. We uh, uh, we work with family members. You know, uh, 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 we work with the whole family. So unfortunately, uh, there are other clinics that work with uh, children on the streets and the homeless population, but uh, we do not. Okay. Um, so uh, unfortunately, what do you do when a child shows clear signs of abuse but keeps denying it? What's the safest safest approach? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I always tell the client that I am not 
an investigator. That is a social worker's job. That is DCFS's job. Uh, anytime I have, uh, I'm a mandated reporter. Anytime that I have, you know, a hunch that something's going on, I call. I don't make a child abuse report. It's called a suspected child abuse report. So I would call uh, DCFS, Department of Child and Family Services, uh, and uh, they would uh, do the investigation themselves. It is, you know, it could be uh, if I see a bruise and if he denies it, I would call. I'm a mandated reporter. I have to. I can only break confidentiality on three things, and that's one of them is child abuse. And, uh, you know, it is not my job to investigate and kick them out. I tell them, hey, you know, I'm doing this for safety. Uh, we can do it anonymously, uh, but I don't because it's kind of obvious, <laughs> you know, who's going to make the report. And then, like, if I do it behind their backs and not tell them, then they're totally never going to trust me ever again. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, the first sign of anything, if I, you know, if I, if I walk into a home and if I see kind of, uh, drug paraphernalia. I have to call and make a, um, a mandated uh, child, a suspected child abuse report. If I see bruises and if the client's story really doesn't add up, I mean, if I see bruises and if like the kid says, "Oh, I played football and I scratched mm -hmm. myself," okay. But if that happens like three weeks in a row, you know, mm -hmm. something's up. We have to call. This is a great question. Um, how do you identify the difference between teens dealing with hard shit and teens with underlying mental illness? Oh, that's a great question. You 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 deal with that by just having being there for for the client, being there uh, for the kid, and they will uh, you know they will open up, and that's when I have to decipher what's really going on, and uh, that's. Uh, Luckily, as an intern, uh, you know, that's where I just thrive on my supervisor. You know, I walk in, I tell him exactly what's going on and we figure it out. You know, I've, uh, I have a kid or, um, uh, I've worked with a client where, you know, it was, uh, it was hard to determine if it was hard shit or if it was mental illness. And then at the end of the day, we broke down everything that was going on. We talked about his stressors, his triggers, you know, uh, his presenting problems, how long this has happened. And, you know, we kind of got to the root of it and it turned out that it was uh depression. He was depressed. So we just really have to explore, you know, it, you know, uh, oh, one of, one of the things about community mental health that really irritates me is that we're supposed to do an intake when we get a new client. And when we get an intake, it's like an hour and a half process, two hours process. That's when we ask some questions, you know, what's going on? What's your presenting problem? What's your behaviors? When did this all start? And then like right at the end, we're supposed to give a diagnosis. That's crazy. How are you supposed to give a diagnosis for an hour and a half session? And a questionnaire. <laughs> you know, it's, it's impossible. So, so, you know, that's, 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 that's where Eli just says, you know what? I'm just going to wait and I'm, you know, I'm not going to submit this until I have, you know, uh, a lot of uh, different things that I need answered before I, uh, I go into it. Because it's so easy to walk in and say, oh, I'm going to diagnose him with this or that. But then, you, you know, you're that guy who's who diagnosed him with something that could not, you know, that's not that's not the right diagnosis. And then he's getting medication for something that's not really the issue. <laughs> yeah. 
This is a great question. Where do babies come from? Oh, uh, a stork, I believe. <laughs> I read a book once. <laughs> made me laugh when I read that. <laughs> um, this is a good one. How do you handle self-disclosure with the kids? It can be good, a good in with kids, but ethically requires care and limits. Excellent question. Oh, I try not to self-disclose. I try my hardest not to, only because it's not about me. It's about the client. But what do you do when, you, when you've got a kid that you feel like is a 12-year-old you? Right, right. No. Oh, 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 oh. I get that all the time. And, you know, uh, I've done it, but, like, I've done it in a sense where, like, uh, a kid, well, okay, I'll give you two examples. I have a client once that would always ask me what I thought, what I thought. Like, uh, would you do this if you were me? Would you do this if I were you? And like that, I wouldn't self-disclose anything that I would do because he's just looking, you know, he's just looking for the answers and he's not trying to like figure it out for himself. But if I have a client that's really struggling and, uh, uh for example, I have a speech impediment and there's just a client that just thought it was like the end of the world. He's he, he's never going to to succeed, and it's you know it's going to be, you know, uh, that he's just going to be a homeless person on the street. Yeah, that's when I saw this cause. I'm like, you're not. <laughs> you know, it's possible to get out of it. You know, uh, I have a speech impediment. It's you know, it works out. I mean, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's like one of my biggest problems in life. But you know, I've got through it kind of and. You know, uh, it's there. And uh, other times uh, when a client just says, you know, I'm just dumb. I don't do good in math. I'm horrible at school. You know, I got a D in math. I'm I'm never going to fail. There's no point. And like I told them, you know, that's when I would self-disclose. And I was like, maybe math isn't for you. You know, try and find uh, something that's not really math related. I'm not, you know, that's not your thing. I was horrible at math. That's why I'm here. <laughs> like, uh, like no equation. So, you, uh, you know, you have to just kind of self-disclose when like the client really needs to hear it. Yeah. Um, are you comfortable talking about uh, having a speech impediment? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Well, I, that was one of my, my fears. <laughs> okay. Um, Talk about it. What? When yeah. did? Was it there at birth? Oh man, it was. It was there. I want to say at birth. I I remember it as like maybe first grade. It's bad. It's uh, my whole life. I just kind of uh, started to uh, uh, first. I started blinking a lot when I was like in first grade. I was like blink every second. Like I wouldn't know why. And then in like second grade, it went away. And then my speech impediment came. And it is just not like a stutter, not like Porky Pig, like that's all, that's all, that's all, folks. Uh, it is, I fully jerk. I twitch. <laughs> I like people, like when they meet me, have no idea what's going on. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of humorous now, but, uh, it was bad for a long time. It was, uh, I used to see a speech therapist when I was younger. I was like in second or third grade because it was like I would just move all over the place. Like it, it, it would seem that I was having a seizure, <laughs> and uh, it was you know I just couldn't put a thought and words together. It was really hard. Would your uh, mind just go blank, and then your your you, yeah, their physical reflexes would kind of kick in, and y- yeah, I would stutter and I would just twitch, and it would just I would it. it it would feel like I was saying the same thing for an hour. Did you have the thought clearly in your mind that you wanted to say, but mm-hmm. your body just couldn't get it out? Right, right. It just couldn't get it out. And the easiest way to get it out was if I twitched. If I twitched, I'd say the word. 
But like, then it would just be really weird. Why is this guy flailing his arms and shaking his leg? <laughs> so would it, would it you just be hung up on a single word or the entire phrase? Uh, I would be hung up on a word. I get stuck on a word and then that would make me stutter and then twitch. And then, uh, uh, and then I would think, Oh, well, I just look like a real idiot in front of this person. And then I'd get more nervous, and then I would continue, and then it would just be horrible. But uh, I saw a speech therapist when I was younger, in like second grade or third grade. And uh, one of the things they said to me was, well, by the time uh, you're in eighth grade, I'll go away. Like it's a cold, you know? <laughs> like, no. was, that the, was that the truth? No, it didn't go away. I still have it. It's, you know, it's a lot less now. A lot of people... I don't recognize it because I guess I'm like really good at hiding my little twitch. Uh, I haven't noticed any any twitches. A couple of times I've noticed you struggling for words, but I also do that too. <laughs> Mine just happens to be I stare into space for 15 seconds and right. talk about how old I am. Right. Well, now it's uh, it's more now when I introduce myself. Mm-hmm. It is when I introduce myself when I say my name like Hi, I'm Eli. Oh God, I always like I have to like rely on like my girlfriend. Like I tell my girlfriend whenever we go to any party, like you gotta introduce me. I can't introduce myself. When I introduce myself, it just starts. I get so nervous because I don't know, you know, uh, I don't know uh, uh, these people. I get really anxious. I get really nervous. And I, is the anxiety that you're going to stutter or that they're going to think something about you that's negative regardless of your stutter? Yeah, just everything. I, I think it's a combination of both. It's like they're I know I'm see, going to stutter. They're going to see what a piece of shit you really are. <laughs> exactly. Like, who's this loser? Like, why? You know, like, what's going on? And then that sets the tone for the rest of the evening. And then I'm just in the corner, just quiet. <laughs> but like when I'm like with my friends, oh, it's just, you know, it is just. Uh, I don't stutter at all. I'm very comfortable. It's job interviews are the worst. Oh my god, job interviews are the are the biggest issues that I've had. I went to a doctor once and I said, "I've job interviews. I'm 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 bailing every single job interview. Like I am just I am not getting these job interviews because I'm so nervous, I'm so anxious, and I stutter. And like, who's going to hire someone who's twitching in their office? Like, hire me! You know, like there's, 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 you know, there's a no way. So I went to a doctor and uh, he gave me anxiety medication. I was like, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take Xanax. I don't want to take all this stuff. You know, I'm fine, but you know. I, I shit you not the one job. I took the Xanax. I swallowed my pride. I went in there and I got the job. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I don't want to take, I don't want to take anxiety medication. I don't want to get addicted. I don't want to have the side effects that benzos give you. But you know. Do you still take Xanax? Only in job interviews. <laughs> this sounds good to me. <laughs> only in job interviews. I, it's, it's, it's really funny, you know, and then like I stopped because like, you know, I thought it was a big confidence thing. It's because mm-hmm. I lack a lot of sort of confidence in myself. So, uh, and then after I got my job that I'm currently uh, there, you know, uh, 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 a lot of times you have opportunities, you know, uh, for other places. And I, I go and I was like, oh, I don't need Xanax. I'm fine. I'm really confident what I do. You know, like I'm a good therapist. I'm really good at this. And I just go in. And halfway through, I'm like, fuck, why did I ever get the Xanax? Why don't I swallow my pride? Why don't I just do it? 
you know, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's tough. But yeah, when I was a kid, I was told it'll go away when I was in the eighth grade. Hasn't gone away. When I meet my friends, I think the best way, the best way for me to not stutter is for them to tell me, like, hey, like, like, what's going on? And I tell them, oh, I have a speech impediment. And then it goes away. And then I'm never going to stutter with that person ever again. <laughs> it's just like when I'm really nervous, when I'm in job interviews, when I'm meeting people. Like, when I meet people, I'm not even nervous. Mm-hmm. I just can't say my name. And I think it's uh, because it's easier to say one syllable when you stutter. So, like, if my name was Bob, I'd have no problem. But it's Eli. So, like, I always say E. And then it's like, uh, I can't say the rest of my name. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, there goes me shaking again. But, yeah. It's been tough. It, you know, it hasn't gone away. It's gotten better. Everyone says that, you know, that they don't notice it, but that's, you know, that's great, but it still happens. And when I introduce myself to this day, it's just, you know, a nightmare for me. (laughs) Well, do you want to do some, some fears and loves? Oh, sure. Sure. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to share with, um, the listeners about uh, parent-child uh, relationships, you know, before we uh, we go to fears and loves. You know, I think we covered everything. The listening, yeah. listening, and empathi- empathizing. Right. Just be and- there, man. You, you know, it's it's sometimes. I told my supervisor the other day. I said, you know what? Sometimes I forget the basics. Sometimes I get so involved in these clients and their issues and the family dynamics that I forget. Just shut up. <laughs> Step back. Listen and use silence as your biggest weapon. Mm-hmm. You know, if you use silence, the client will think, form a thought, speak out loud, and then, you know, the work's there. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes I forget the basics and it's just so, you know, t- uh, to me it comes easy sometimes, but, uh, uh, but yeah, you just have to step back and just make sure that the client knows that you're there for them and that you align yourself with the client. I think that's really important. So give me some fears. Oh boy. Well, well, back on the uh, speech impediment for a second. There, 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 there are three things that I've wanted to do in life, and I still could very well do them. Uh, one's a therapist, so check the others the others an auctioneer <laughs> the, the, yeah oh boy and that's another thing with like my speech impediment when someone like uh i can't play games that are timed because that is just <laughs> oh that must be that's hell a, that's that's a nightmare like everyone's staring and like hurry 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 say the word say the word no <laughs> i quit uh no uh the other two i've always wanted to be a politician i I think that's still doable, <laughs> you know. And then um, the third is a stand-up comedian. So with my anxiety and my sweet impediment, that's out the window. Right? So, yeah. But you know, it's 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 all still possible, as Wayne Gretzky says, and I use this quote all the time with my clients: "You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take." So, yep. so you know, uh, but yeah. yeah, Eli and I had a very nice talk about hockey before we started rolling. He's extremely uh, knowledgeable. About uh, about professional hockey, I was I was uh, I don't expect that when a guest <laughs> comes in here. So it was uh, very refreshing. Give me uh, give me another fear. All right, let me hold on. I wrote these down. <laughs> I I came a little prepared. All right, uh, fear. I fear of caring too much about work and my clients, and not enough about my family. I love my family. I love my girlfriend. Sometimes I spend all day. I work. You know. Five days a week, like 12, 14-hour days, and I'm so involved in these families, and a lot of these families don't really use the tools I give them, and I stress out about it. And then at the end of the day, I'm afraid I'm afraid that, like, 
I'm spending all my time with these families that don't even, you know, want help. And a lot of these families I'm not going to know in 10 years. And, like, I'm just, like, you know, ignoring my family. And my fear is, like, I'm going to, like, ruin that relationship with my girlfriend, you know, mm-hmm. and my immediate family. Because I'm not there because I'm tired or I'm doing notes all weekend, like this weekend. Or, you know, I'm just not there for them. And that's my biggest fear is that I'm spending my, my, my entire life with people, with strangers, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I'm not giving them my uh, full attention. Uh is there a book that you rec- can recommend uh, if people are interested in becoming a more communicative uh, parent? Ooh, yes. It is. A, there is a book. Oh, it's a wonderful question. There's a book by Dan Siegel called oh, – what is it called? It is – The Whole Brain? Yes. Yeah. The Whole Brain Child. The Whole Brain Child. Yes. Okay. Yes. The Whole Brain Child by Dan Siegel, uh, S-I-E-G-E-L is how you spell his name. Yes, and that is a wonderful book for parents to uh, communicate uh, to their children, to understand what's going on in their brain, you know, uh, how they react to certain uh, communication styles. Uh, it is a wonderful book. I recommend that book for everyone. That was like one of the first books I've read uh, when I was a therapist, and it was great. Well, Eli, thank you so much for coming and, and sharing your uh, your experience, uh, your experiences with us. Of course. Um, dealing with uh, at-risk kids and uh, and some of your own personal stuff. I, I appreciate it. And uh, keep keep fighting the good fight, buddy. Perfect. Thank you so much, Paul. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Eli. And uh, hats off to any mental health professional out there on the front lines. Um, we really appreciate what you do, not only for the people that you help, but for uh, how much you, you help uh, our society. Before I take it out with a bunch of surveys, oh, a big old stack of surveys, I want to remind you that there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you are feeling so inclined, you can support us financially by going to our website, mentalpod.com, and making either a one-time PayPal donation or, my favorite, becoming a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It uh, helps uh, provide a a financial footing to keep the podcast going. it is not a uh, a very firm footing, and we could definitely use some more um, some more uh, monthly donors to help expand the podcast. And uh, um, you know, you're tired of me saying this bullshit. Um, you can also uh, shop at Amazon through our search link. Um, that'll give us a, a little bit of money. Uh, it doesn't make your product any more expensive when you shop at Amazon. You can. Um, Help us non-financially by writing something nice on iTunes and giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking uh, on iTunes. And uh, when we're more visible, we get more listeners. And finally, you can spread the word about the podcast through social media. That really helps. That really, really helps. Um, So as much as you can do those things, that would be awesome. If you can't do any of those things, that's awesome too. Um, Let's get to the surveys. This is a shame and secret survey from Kate Knows Nothing. She is straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, 
She writes that she's never been sexually abused, but um, she continues, when I was 13, I had a crush on a boy in my class. In the last month before school ended, we went into a bathroom together. I had never kissed anyone before and had no sexual experience, although I used my sexuality to attract his attention. I don't think it would have paid much too much attention to me if I didn't behave so pro- provocatively. I didn't really want to do anything sexual with him. I just wanted him to kiss me, hold my hand, and maybe just want me back. Instead, he pulled out his dick and said, well, go on then, while pushing me down. I was so scared uh, he wouldn't want me, so I did what he asked. This happened twice. He told his friends and word got around and I was labeled a slut. All I wanted was for him to want me back. Throughout my teenage years, I gave a lot of guys a lot of head searching for someone to want me. No one did. You know, my my first thought, first of all, I'm sorry that you experienced that. And um, I think this is a, a, a really textbook example of separating whatever that other person's um, motives or intents were for the time being from what it is that you're feeling. Um, because a lot of people will say, well, if I couldn't, you know, if what that person did isn't prosecutable, I don't deserve any self-compassion. Um, and that's where a lot of us just go off the rails and remain stuck. Um, you deserve a ton of compassion. You were um, a 13-year-old girl that just wanted to be noticed and wanted to be loved, and you were innocent. And and it sounds like after you know after that happened, you know, and then the, the being labeled a slut in your high school that is a form of sexual abuse. Um, and then the throughout my teenage years, you write, I gave a lot of guys head. Uh, uh, searching for someone to want me. That is also a really textbook um, thing of people who have had a traumatic sexual experience is that they go out and they repeat that thing or they become very promiscuous. Um, And that's the brain's way of trying to take back control and say that this is something that, you know, that I do have control over. So I I mention all that to hopefully um, uh, A, let you know you're, you're not alone and and um and to not feel shame uh ever been physically or emotionally abused you know the interesting thing is is whenever i read something like i just read that that where where somebody um has an experience like that and has trouble voicing what it is that they're feeling with the with the person and is is mistreated um 99 times out of 100 the next section in the survey is what is your, you know, people describe their relationship with their parents. And it's always a parent that discounts that person's feelings, um, it has no emotional connection to the kid. Um, there's always some type of emotional abandonment uh, in, that, in that parent. Anyway, uh, she's not sure if she was physically or emotionally abused. And she writes, my dad has... <sighs> I always love the not sures. Yeah, enjoy this one. Not sure. Not sure if there's any uh, emotional abuse going on. My dad has always worked incredibly hard for me and my sister to live comfortable, privileged lives. But with that, his love has always had conditions. Right away, that's emotional abuse. Conditional love is a form of emotional abuse. I can't remember a time when my dad would actually enjoy spending time with me or even say well done if I had achieved something that made me happy. 
again, emotional abuse. I've always desired his attention, his love, and his friendship, but I don't meet his criteria for what a good daughter should be. So I am met with constant disapproval. And if you only listen to me, again, emotional abuse. I began self-harming at 14, no wonder, and tried to overdose twice at 15. Uh, my dad drove me to the hospital the second time I OD'd, and I remember him slapping me around my face and asking me how I could do this to him and how stupid I was. But she's not sure if that was emotional abuse or physical abuse. That is the length that we will go to to deny the truth about our parent not loving us. That is how deep our need is to be loved by our parent. I see this time and again, and I've and I've been I've been her. My situation was different, but I lied to myself for years that what I was experiencing um, was love. And anyway, continuing. Um, my dad loves his family with all his being. Uh, I would disagree. I think your dad loves his image uh, with all his being. Anyway, but I think that it's destroyed a large part of his life, and I think he has missed out on a lot of love and happiness because of his expectations. He won't accept my affection because he thinks I want something from him. Jesus, I'll be 21 this year. Lots has changed, but sometimes, but some things stay the same. I still wish we could talk and have a relationship where we see each other as equals, and I wish I could be truly myself without worrying what my dad would say or think. So many of the decisions I make are based on his approval. I haven't cut myself in four years, but every three to five months, I become slightly manic where I don't feel connected to my body, and I feel an absence of myself and my surroundings. Other times I feel intense emotions where I can't breathe from crying and my own privilege disgusts me. Don't get me wrong, I still come from a working class family, but the fact that I get to choose the food I eat or when I want to shower makes me feel that suffocating might be the most comforting thing that could happen to me. Please never confuse material privilege with emotional privilege. And you grew up in emotional poverty. And that is the thing that is most important to us, is emotional wealth. Darkest thoughts. I've been fantasizing about suicide, creating scenarios in my head, and thinking about how, when, and where I would do it. Darkest secrets. I haven't had a friend since I was 14 and often eat until my stomach hurts. I also encourage my boyfriend to sleep with other girls. He thinks I'm being careless when I say it, but him having sex with someone else would take the pressure off of me. Please go see somebody uh, who treats um, sexual trauma, who specializes in it. Because I, again, I'm not a therapist, but I did show a movie where John Candy cooked a, uh, a gigantic pancake. And uh, I I think not wanting to have sex, feeling pressure to have sex with your partner is another textbook uh, repercussion of sexual trauma. Sexual fantasies, uh, most powerful to you, to be motherly with a younger person, to take someone's virginity. My sexuality confuses me. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? A friend. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared things about my dad and some of the su suicidal thoughts with my boyfriend. He comforts me, tells me I'm high maintenance, and then takes me out to smoke weed. Yeah, that's that's not good. How do you feel after writing these things down? Ashamed that my feelings aren't valid. Um and I feel guilty. Your feelings are so valid. Your feelings are so valid. And you are having a human, a normal human reaction to an abnormal, unhealthy environment. 
and um, you're, I'm sorry, but any partner that calls you uh, high maintenance and whose solution is to go get high might not be a good long-term choice. All right, I've given it enough um, in my two cents for that one. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Marie, and she writes, I have generalized anxiety disorder, and with that I often get feelings of dissociation. One night I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth, and I was really anxious and really dissociated from reality. I felt like I was in a dream. I remember looking up at myself in the mirror and not recognizing myself for a good 10 to 20 seconds, which was a strange feeling. Then I thought, huh, I'm not as ugly as I thought I was. In that moment I was able to get... to sort of get an onlooker's perspective of myself, which was actually kind of cool. Maybe, maybe uh, there should be, you know how there are like professional shoppers that, that help you uh, shop and pick out clothes for you? Maybe there should be somebody that uh, helps you, uh, they help push you into a state of dissociation when you're going to go buy pants. Uh, they just say a bunch of really, really triggering things to you as you're uh, as you're trying pants on, and then you get an objective opinion of how they actually look. I'm going to patent that. This is from the being hospitalized survey filled out by Audrey thirteen, and uh, she was hospitali- hospitalized for suicidal thoughts and. Uh, She says, the first two days were hell because I have social anxiety and I was forced to interact with a bunch of strangers. I also have a little bit of agoraphobia, so being in this strange environment was a bit distressing. After I became more comfortable with where I was and the people, I felt more at home. I liked it. It felt like preschool, except you can't go home at the end of the day. Hospitalizing myself was one of the most responsible decisions I've ever made for myself. High five to you, Audrey. High five. Uh, Brian, uh, who suffers from depression and ADD and anxiety, uh, gives us a snapshot from his life. Explaining to my uh, also oversensitive and depressed dad that his 20-plus helpful career-minded tips sent over text and email in the last two weeks have given me the worst debilitating anxiety I've ever experienced, making me unable to leave my bed unless I need to eat or use the bathroom while knowing that this breaks his heart because he's only trying to help. I'm unemployed and honestly need the help, but the help is terrifying in a way I can't control or explain. Brian, I think we all understand that on such a deep level. It is, it's like there's a tyrant and a rebel in our brain and the tyrant, and, and this is a, a, a phrase I heard from somebody else in a support group, they shared this, and it just so describes the the two mean people in, in my brain or the mean voice in my brain and then I'm the rebel, I don't know, but it's the, the tyrant says, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, and then the other parts of me just shuts down and says, bad is the only thing I can handle. Uh, this was filled out by Much Better Days Ahead, and she writes about her depression. Decorating the area around my bed attentively, uh, more attentively than anywhere else in my house because it's where I am more than anywhere. Yeah, we get that. About her love addiction, he can't come to see me today for totally legitimate reasons, but it leaves me feeling worthless anyway. Uh, 
about her skin picking. I pick at my skin because I want to be flawless, and pushing the goo out of this rough, spotted skin is as close as I will ever come. About being codependent, what else can I do for you to make me more comfortable? That is fantastic. What else can I do for you to make me more comfortable? Wow. You have perfectly distilled codependency. That is a t-shirt. About her PTSD, my body is screaming danger, danger to me, 35 years too late. About being a sex crime victim, not knowing how to answer the question, are you sexually active? I'm like, does my dad count? Does it matter if I don't want to be? That is so sad. About uh, racial and cultural bias. When men tell me I've always wanted to have an Asian woman, what I hear is, any slanty-eyed cunt will do. You aren't really a person to me. You are an ideal of someone meek and subservient. I don't care if they think it, but it's not a compliment when they say it to me. About having a physical disability. I worry that my asthma will prevent me from being able to run far away quickly if I need to. Um, about living with an abuser, being so jealous of kids for whom kiss daddy goodnight as a loving thing and instead of a nausea-inducing torture. Oh, my God. About her anger issues, knowing who I want to punch and why, but only getting to use mean words on the wrong people then feeling like a monster. That is such a good description of... The anger that comes from living in an abusive home and how we take it out on the people that deserve it the least. Um, and then a snapshot from her life. Uh, I was in a foster home at the time because I'd been molested and reported. I'd been molested and reported my dad. I was forced to go see my parents for holidays and this was Christmas. I wanted to leave, just leave. But everyone insisted that I kiss my dad goodbye. They looked at me like some performing circus monkey, and of course, I kissed him. Then I went home and threw up the entire Christmas meal from the disgust of having his face so close to mine again, to smelling his breath and feeling his stubble on my face again, just as I was starting to feel safe under state care. Oh, I should have saved this one towards the end of the show where the the heavier ones are. Um, uh, Sending you a sending you a big big bundle of love um you sound like such a sweet sweet person and i'm so sorry that you had to experience all that um you know i was thinking there there's some really dark surveys in the uh this pile that i have to read and um they're mostly towards the towards the back and um you know i often beat myself up about I not beat myself up. I often question myself about reading them because I know some people get triggered. Some people are disturbed by them. And I was doing some soul searching about why I feel compelled to read them. And I think one of the reasons is, A, I think they're compelling. But also really important is I think these people's Pain needs to be witnessed by as many people as possible. And there's so many places in our day, in our lives, where it's not considered an appropriate place to share that. And I want this podcast to be one of those places where any kind of pain or darkness can be shared. 
and I've gotten emails from people who have filled out really dark surveys and then heard them read and have emailed me and told me how empowering it was to hear their story come out of somebody else's mouth. And I guess I just wanted to say that because I worry that <laughs> I worry that you judge me for the surveys being so dark. Um, and I'm worried that you'll stop listening and you'll abandon me and I'll be seven years old at kindergarten crying for my mommy. There we have it. We've all come from, it's all come for full circle. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by Lana and she writes, I have a beautiful present. Oh, speaking of kindergarten, I have a beautiful present from a friend I had in kindergarten. It's a pyramid filled with sand and painted with gold. It is one of the most astounding and marvelous things I have. This friend gave it to me because I was his friend then when other people weren't. He gave it to me on a bench far away from our classmates and he thanked me. I realized I could be good for people. I cherish it to this day. I love it. It makes me feel beautiful and kind. It is beautiful and kind. Could have ended the, the podcast on that one. So beautiful. This is filled out by Zapped, and she is uh, bisexual in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I've had a number of experiences with sexual harassment, inappropriate touching by older men, unwanted sexual advances from male friends, catcalling from a very young age. Uh, I developed very early, but nothing outside of what I consider fairly typical for a young woman, unfortunately. Have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Growing up, my best female friend was very dominant and bossy. During sleepovers, she would make me... Uh, quote, hold my breath until she fell asleep because I breathed too loud. Once we were playing and she was a famous singer at a concert and I was the stage. I laid face down with my face in her rug while she stood on top of me and sang into her mirror. Let's just let that soak in. She was a famous singer at a concert, and I was the stage. I laid face down with my face in her rug while she stood on top of me and sang into her mirror. Oh, my fucking Lord. That is quite a picture. Um, I, I want to meet this, uh, this friend of yours because that is... Of all of like the narcissistic shit I have heard in five years of doing this show, that might be the most humorously uh, narcissistic thing I think I've ever heard. Um, these are just two extreme examples of things that happen, but I was always too loud. She was constantly telling me to be quiet, and in general, the power dynamics and the friendship were very one-sided. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, yes, absolutely. We were best friends from first grade until senior year of high school. We are still close friends, but not in the same way since we went off to college. Our families are very close, and our parents are neighbors, and still celebrate every major uh, holiday uh, together every year. We share so many common experiences and formative life experiences. She is the essence of my childhood. Darkest thoughts. I think about people mourning my death a lot. I think about experiencing a violent trauma so that I would have a real excuse for feeling wounded. That is such a common one. 
so many of us feel that way. We fantasize about being in a hospital and people coming around and caring for us. And yeah. Um, darkest secrets. This friend and I experimented sexually together, mostly role-playing male and female roles, simulating heterosexual sex and kissing. This happened from when we were very young until the beginning of high school. I was often the initiator and usually played the boy in the relationship. We never spoke about it openly and never have. People in high school used to tease us by calling us the lesbians because we were so close, even if our actual sexual relationship was deeply, deeply secret. I've only ever told my current male partner that it happened. It was I was usually the initiator and worry that these occurrences were not consensual and have had a negative effect on her life, mental health, slash our relationship. These experiences make me question my sexual identity. I've only been with men sexually. I do not outwardly identify as being bisexual or queer, but I hope that I will be able to someday. I'm in a committed heterosexual relationship and deeply in love with my partner, but I fear that never having a, quote, legitimate sexual experience with someone of the same sex will make me feel inadequate or unsatisfied or something forever. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm very attracted to butch and androgynous woman, women and often fantasize about being the object of their desire. Being in a threesome with a man and a woman is also a fantasy of mine. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I have a very close friend who is also in a long-term heterosexual relationship who identifies as bisexual, but is just starting to be more public about her identity. I wish I could have a real conversation with her about our shared experience instead of using very coded internet interactions to sublimate messages about my identity for her, uh, to her. I wish I could also be more open and candid with my partner, but I fear that this will make him question our relationship or my feelings or commitment to him. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I had been confident enough to experiment sexually in college. I went to a very liberal school where everyone was very open about their sexual and gender identities. I was even on the women's rugby team. I was deeply suppressing any possibility that I was attracted to women at that time. More than anything, I wish I could just feel some confidence that I know myself and not question that my sexual identity is legitimate, no matter who knows or doesn't know. Have you shared these things with others? I've told my current partner about my first sexual experiences being with this female friend. I've said things in a very coded way. I post articles about bisexual women and heterosexual relationships, make jokes about queerness that indicate that I am queer slash bisexual. Uh, with my partner, the actual out loud conversation that has happened about my sexuality is very little. Uh, quote, I don't know that you identified that way. I didn't know that you identified that way. I guess I do. I'm not really sure. Maybe I do. Has been almost the complete extent of it. Once after a few drinks with friends from college, I blurted out, I am sexually attracted to women, but because of my relationship, I will probably have a sexual experience. I will probably have a sexual experience with a woman. Uh, and ended up feeling embarrassed and apologizing about, quote, coming out. They didn't care at all, obviously. Why am I so ashamed? How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel some clarity and relief. I've been thinking nonstop about being more openly honest about my identity, especially around people who I know will accept me, and I hope this is a step in doing so. I hope it is, too. It, it, it seems like... Um, uh, 
like there's um, like you're moving towards like you're moving towards uh, more clarity on that and ultimately I don't think the whatever the label is matters whether it's queer bisexual uh, pansexual it's that are you living your truth that's the most important thing and are you living your truth unapologetically this is an awful moment I love this name uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself I miss my dead cats and he writes a couple of weeks ago I was having a conversation via text and he and his friend are uh, are gay I've, I've whittled the survey uh, down a little bit a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation via text message with a friend about random, unrelated topics. Suddenly, he sent along a photo he had taken with his cell phone. It was a photo of his penis, and he asked me if I thought the lesion near the base of his shaft looked like syphilis. Talk about an abrupt change of topics. Uh, anyway, he thought it might be a friction abrasion or a tooth scrape, and mentioned that the lesion hurts and a syphilis canker usually doesn't. So initially, I was caught a bit off guard by the photo and the request for an amateur STD diagnosis. It occurred to me that my friend had thought to himself, who do I know who has seen more cock than a urinal at Yankee Stadium, and concluded that I had, and based upon my uh, extensive field research, should know how to spot a diseased dick. But I put that aside and told him that if I were him, I'd definitely go get it checked out by his doctor because it didn't look like an abrasion or a tooth scrape to me. I also encouraged him to get a full STD screening from his doctor while he was there in the office. I followed up with my friend the next day and he had visited the doctor who assured him the lesion was not a syphilitic canker but was instead folliculitis, likely stemming from a small skin break due to trimming his pubic hair. I took this opportunity to tell my friend that I was truly touched that he felt comfortable sending me a photo of his penis to ask my two-cent diagnosis during his hour of uncertainty. He said that there's not too many people he'd be comfortable sharing that type of picture with, and he felt he could count on me to be non-judgmental. So at that point, I said, you know how when people die, those left behind say generic nice things about the dearly departed? Well, when I die, I want you to tell the truth. He was always a bit of a cunt, but he was the type of guy you could turn to when you had a weird spot on your dick. <laughs> oh, a good awfulsome moment is Christmas to me. This is from the Being Hospitalized survey filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Heggy, Heavy Bag of Shame. Um, why were you hospitalized? I was going to jump in front of a fast-moving train after I'd lost my job because my bipolar got out of control. Describe your experience as a patient. I was terrified to be thrown into a mix of people with severe schizophrenia or violent tendencies. I was severely depressed and suicidal, but otherwise was normal. The staff didn't seem to care. Think one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I felt like I was in the wrong place, and the confusion only made things worse. They must have been used to addicts because they were extremely cautious when it came to giving me anxiety meds when I desperately needed to calm down. Thank you for sharing that. This uh, is filled out by, Can Anyone Hear Us? 
And uh, she writes about her depression. Creeps in like the frost in late June. A brief reminder that the cold nights you thought were gone are simply right around the corner. Yeah, boy, do I know that feeling. I always feel like it's a stalker. And uh, when you feel better, you feel like you've moved. And then when the depression creeps back, it's like a knock on the door. About her alcoholism and drug addiction. I have a career, kids, engaged, and continue to succeed, and no one, sometimes not even me, has a clue I self-medicate with meth. Thank you for sharing that. Never know what's going on in somebody else's life. We're so used to comparing our insides to other people's outsides. Uh, this is filled out by Traveler, and she writes about her love addiction. I fall in love with everyone I meet for a few days until the shine wears off. It's so exciting. I keep it to myself pretty well now because sometimes it's hurtful to other people if they get caught up in my romantic madness. Snapshot from her life. I was sick and home from school in seventh grade for a week with bronchitis. I was feeling better, but one of my school friends had died in a car crash and I was going to the funeral the next day. My parents were gone, and although I knew they might be pissed if they found out, I decided to walk down to the gas station about a quarter of a mile away and get some candy. When I got home, Mom swung the front door open, grabbed my wrist, pulling me into the house, asking me where I was. She did not like the answer. She grabbed a wire coat hanger from the foyer closet and beat the hell out of me. An hour later, as usual, she came to my room and was crying, telling me nobody had the right to do that to me and needed me to forgive her. The next day, I was at a friend's house getting ready for the funeral, and while changing, two of my girlfriends saw all the bruises, and I had to talk them out of telling their parents. Oh, that is heartbreaking. And you know what's heartbreaking, too, is just seeing the battle in your mom. Oh. Oh, and she writes in another part of the survey that she believes her mom was uh, un- undiagnosed of borderline, which it which it sounds like. Mm, sending you some love. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment from coming out of the woods, and uh, he writes, um, and uh, coming out of the woods is a trans male, and her um, spouse. I believe is trans and they refer the the pronoun they use is they so those of you who aren't familiar with why people would say they instead of he or she that that is um the way to refer to somebody um if they prefer that that's the pronoun My spouse and I like to walk around the park next to our apartment in the evenings. Before their schizophrenia was treated, these walks were agony for them, and it killed me to see them suffering. A few months after they started treatment, my spouse stopped in front of these metal poles, uh, the kind to hold up orange plastic fencing, and said, You know, I used to think these things were reading my thoughts. Wow, I can't believe I used to think that. With a huge smile and none of the tension they used to have at this point, they continued walking, finally in peace. That's got to be such a beautiful moment, seeing seeing your partner improve with something as serious and debilitating as uh, as schizophrenia. I can't imagine what a what a relief that has to be, and for obviously for them too. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Capsized. She's straight, in her 30s, 
Raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. She's been emotionally abused. I was bullied for two years in middle school. It got so bad I attempted suicide and had to switch schools. Any positive experiences? The bullies used to be my friends, and the year before I became the target, there was another kid that we bullied. So, in a way, I feel I deserved it. Darkest thoughts? That I'm a complete and utter liar with no conscience. Darkest secrets? That I never finished college that I lied to everyone I love, uh, that I had, everyone I love, that I had, and slowly everyone is starting to see my lies, and they will see me, and they see me for what I am, a lying coward, and cut me out of their life. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. God, this sounds pathetic, but I've only, quote, made love once, and the connection was so scary and amazing, and I'm afraid I'll never get that again because I'm incapable of being intimate. My most powerful sexual fantasy is being able to be vulnerable, and it makes me feel inadequate that I have a hard time doing that. You know, the reason I wanted to to read this this survey is because... I, I, I just wanted to high-five you for being in that place where being vulnerable um, in a sexual experience is something that you want because so many people, myself included, have struggled with vulnerability in our sexuality um, for much of our lives. And... Um, well, I'm, I'm sorry that you were, um, having, a, a hard time making that connection. Um, I guess I just want to give you a high five and say, um, it's really good that, that you desire vulnerability, um, in an in intimate, uh, sexual connection. Basically, I'm jealous of you. And what I want to say is, uh, Fuck off. You're where I want to be, and it pisses me off. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? That I'm sorry I wasn't a better person. I lied because I was too afraid to show you who I am because I'm not enough. I'm a parody of a person. What, if anything, do you wish for? To have the courage to be myself every day without apologizing or calculating what other people want me to be. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, with my cousin and uncle. Surprisingly, they've been helping me. I didn't think I'd get this kind of support. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome when we reach out and and we're met? Oh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I still hate myself. <laughs> oh, please don't hate yourself. You sound like a really, really sweet person. Uh... Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? The world is a strange place, wonderful and fucking terrible, and you never know where help or love is going to come from until you take the chance to ask for it. It's the scariest thing in the world, but it can be amazing. A fucking man. Thank you for that. What a great survey. Let's see. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Just Trying. And she writes, I live in absolute fear of my brother for as long I've lived. No, I lived in absolute fear of my brother for as long as I could remember. I never brought up the sexual abuse and defaulted to behaving in a manner that reduced the outbursts he periodically released on my family. Just two years ago, I sat consumed in joy as he repeatedly punched me for the first time that I had said no. Good for you. 
Good for you. This is an awful moment filled out by Herbert's Butthole Surfers. For those of you that are new to the podcast, uh, a running uh, chestnut on this uh, podcast is talking about my dog Herbert's uh, Butthole. Don't even ask how it started. Don't even ask what it means. Um, And last of all, do not ask Herbert. Uh, Her awful moment is, I bought my new... I brought my new boyfriend to lobster dinner with my parents. My boyfriend had never had lobster before, so he asked my dad if he should use a fork or his hands. And my dad replied happily, it's a hand job. <laughs> oh, I wonder, did your dad know that that, what he was saying, or I wonder if he was, he was clueless. He had to have known what a hand job is. This is the being hospitalized survey filled out by Jaeger. And uh, she was hospitalized after a suicide attempt. And she writes, initially, I was given hope that I would finally receive good mental health care. I left the hospital feeling let down, misled, and actually mentally abused and more vulnerable. I am now less likely to seek help in the future. Man, the, the, the breadth of experiences that people have in psych wards is uh, astonishing. Uh, Book nerd Jen writes about her dermatillomania. The band-aids on my fingers serve two purposes, to hide the picking wounds and create a barrier so I leave them alone and allow them to heal. No band-aid ever lasts more than a few hours. Uh, Snapshot from her life. As I struggle reading for my online college course with ADD, I feel my fingers ache and look down. All eight of them are swollen red and a couple are bleeding. I've been picking and didn't even realize it. Thank you for that. Oh, and she writes, any comments to make the podcast better? Nope, but for for your information, you can already pre-order Civ 6. I've lost many days to Civ over the years, no regrets. I recently started getting back into uh, Civ 5, and uh, oh, it is just such sweet nectar when I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to be in my brain, or at least the part of my brain that feels emotions. And just that feeling when when I realize I'm probably going to win is just, oh, I don't know what those chemicals are that my brain releases. But in that moment, I, if I could just keep playing that game without it affecting my life at all, I would I would do it probably for three days straight. Uh, this is an awful moment by Phoebe, and she writes, I decided to get baptized at 12 years old. I was really excited, so I told my mom that I wanted to get baptized, and I was planning on doing it the next month. She started screaming at me and telling me that my stepmom brainwashed me and that I wasn't allowed to ever go to church again. She called my dad and started screaming at him. And I remember hearing, what the fuck is wrong with you? You are making your daughter sob. Get a hold of yourself. And then he hung up. Even though I hated that moment, I felt so supported by my dad. It was nice to have someone in my corner and realize that my mom was crazy. That is an awfulsome moment. Thank you. And those that are new to the podcast, uh, awfulsome is something that was uh, a combination of awesome and awful. 
Um, usually awful at the time, but upon uh, reflection, has something in it that makes us smile or sometimes chuckle. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Lily. She is uh, straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, my mother and I used to have a solid relationship until she fell out of love with my dad and fell in love with alcohol and smoking obsessively. She goes into my room at ridiculous hours of the night to remind me how awful I am and how much I don't deserve to live. Well, in your mom's defense, People do tend to forget that they're awful and that they don't deserve to live. So um, until somebody comes out with an alarm clock that reminds you of that, you really can't blame your mom for doing that. Uh, Saying this, she is intoxicated and sky high. Every morning she has a hangover and it drags on throughout the day until she gets drunk again. When she isn't smoking, she gets irritated about the smallest of things and threatens me all the time. I hate it so much. She never listens. She doesn't feel like a mother anymore. Any positive experiences? There are so many happy memories. I just can't bring myself to hate my mother and I don't blame her for anything. I just wish she was mentally stronger to fight against her addiction. Well, you know, the interesting thing about addiction is you can't fight it. You can only surrender to the fact that you will never be more powerful than it and that you need help. That is that is the the idea that you can beat your addiction on your own um, is what leads people um, to OD, to cirrhosis of the liver, to committing suicide, um, to dying sad, lonely, um, deaths. So I hope um, I hope that your mom surrenders to the fact that she's powerless over this. Um, and I hope you go get help um, because the loved ones of the addict and the alcoholic um, can be every bit as sick in a different way as the um, alcoholic or addict because the coping mechanisms that the loved ones learn to keep the family dynamic in balance is usually some really kind of fucked up unwritten rule and um, and it just becomes a part of that person's uh, way of living and it's, it can be very destructive. So I, I hope you uh, I hope you go get help because you can't certainly do anything about your mom. And if you need to cut her out of your life, cut her out of your life. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, a lot of addicts, um, the best thing, the most loving thing you can do is cut them out of your life. And, um, you know, at least temporarily, a lot of them won't wake up until everybody's left them. And then maybe they can see the truth and go, well, maybe I am a fucking pain in the ass to be around. Any positive experiences? Oh, I did that one. Uh, Darkest thoughts. My deepest, darkest thoughts happen very often. In the subway, I sometimes think I could push this person into the oncoming train and their whole life will be over. Their family distraught. Maybe their spouse or children were planning a vacation to a foreign country and their lives are turned upside down by a freak accident. Darkest secrets. I once thought about killing my dog because I thought she didn't deserve the shithole I live in. Uh, sexual fantasies. There really are no sexual fantasies that are more important apart from strong love to the lover. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I really want to tell my boyfriend that he is everything to me. I really wish he could see that and understand that I would give up everything for him. I can't express emotions very well, and I sometimes come across as cold and uncaring, but it's the complete opposite. Um, by the way, if you grew up with a mom who's an alcoholic, it will. there's no way it is not going to creep in into any romantic or intimate relationship you have in your future. Um, and that's another reason to to get help. Um, because you will... Those of us who, who were raised in dysfunction uh, then tend to uh, relive those dramas in our relationships in one form or another, and often very, very unconsciously. And a support group can be a great way to be, become conscious um, and to unlearn those coping mechanisms that we learned as a kid to survive. What, if anything, do you wish for? Um, I wish for a life of happiness and adventure. As cliche as it may sound, I just want to be in the arms of a lover and stay there forever. Have you shared these things with others? I never share any personal thoughts uh, to anyone because I don't have enough trust. They don't want to hear about me anyway. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like it's given me a bit of closure. I've never shared anything like this before. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? To people who have a toxic relationship with friends, please don't force yourself to be friends with this person. Out of the 7 billion people on earth, do you really think this is the only friend you can have? There are plenty of other people just like you with similar interests and personality. Most of them are friendly and nice people. Go out there and find those people. Get rid of that toxic friendship because they obviously don't deserve you. Amen. Amen. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Tyler. He writes, I was five years old watching The Simpsons, trying, trying to drown out my parents arguing in the bedroom. If you leave again, don't bother coming back. Then silence. Then a bag zipping. And my mom quietly walks out the door without saying bye. My next thought was, well, at least they won't be arguing anymore. I remember when my dad used to leave, he'd pack a bag and leave, and he would never say anything when he left, and he would never say anything when he came back. And none of us, it was just, we just all pretended like it didn't happen. This was uh, filled out by, this is a being a hospitalized survey filled out by uh, Wish I Could Turn Back Time, and... Why were you hospitalized? Oh, and this was about somebody in her life being hospitalized. And she writes, uh, we had a fight. He took off. I reported him missing with guns and possibly a harm to others. He stopped at a bank and said something stupid that caused them to call the SWAT team and hospitalize him for three weeks. Uh, I was terrified and have tremendous guilt over not visiting or being supportive. We've been married we had been married 30 plus years and basically I trusted authorities over common sense and allowed my fear to take over. I see he has become permanently scarred from this experience and three years later he is afraid to leave the house. I forced him into therapy which brought up childhood issues and now he lives with a lot of anger. I don't think you did anything wrong. I mean he stopped at a bank and said something stupid that ca caused them to call the SWAT team. Um... How is that your fault? Uh, I think I think you are being, you know, maybe there's some detail that I don't know, but it sounds like you are blaming yourself 
for something you shouldn't be blaming yourself for. Um, yeah. You can't, you're not responsible for his anger. You're not responsible for his actions. Uh, these are three struggle in the sentences uh, filled out in a row uh, by Hippity Dippity. And uh, they're about her mania. The first one she, she fills out, uh, mania, deciding that thing which was a bad idea was not really a bad idea, but unrealized brilliance. And then she came back and filled out one again. Mania, seeing all the benefits and none of the risks. And then she came back and filled it out again. Mania, why am I still doing this? Someone stopped me. Thank you for that. This is the being hospitalized survey filled out by Don. And um, he writes, uh, why were you hospitalized? I purposely drove my car off the road and hit a tree because I thought the military was following me in a helicopter. The psychiatrist told me I needed to be in the hospital after a five-minute interview. Um, the experience was definitely harmful, but not knowing what else to do when I had repeat paranoid episodes, I signed myself in another four times over an eight-year period. Uh, Don is now 72, and the hospitalizations ended when he was 33. Thank you for sharing that, Don. And I like hearing from our older listeners, too. Uh, this is where uh, the surveys get pretty heavy and, and pretty graphic. I've got three of them that are... Um, pretty graphic and I've got a couple of light ones in between them and a really light beautiful one at the end but um, for those of you that are uh, easily triggered um, I'm just going to read it read them uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy uh, who calls himself Zip F and he is pansexual he's in his 20s uh, and he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I was abused by my five-year-older stepbrother. There were about four to five incidents that included coercing me into giving and receiving oral sex when he entered puberty, and even before that, and on a regular basis, exposing me to hard porn and mutual masturbation, all somewhere around the age of seven to nine. He was abused himself multiple times by acquaintances around that age. Uh, he's never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. I let my ex-girlfriend use me as a friends with benefits while continuously texting me she won't care what happens to me, that I just had uh, in my head, that I just had uh, a good penis for her to use, that she does not like me on a personal level. Um any positive experiences with the abusers. My abuser is my brother for whom superficially uh, I am the only real relationship besides his best friend and workplace acquaintances. I do idealize him and feel codependent on him besides him having a palpable negative influence on me my entire life. Darkest thoughts. I want to reenact the power imbalance of my abuse. I want to abuse a small boy similar to what I was at the time. I want to invade single women's homes and expose myself to them. I want to be raped. I want to be humiliated. I want someone to mutilate slash castrate me. 
shame about these thoughts makes me want to die. Darkest secrets. I sucked my brother's cock and I liked it. I masturbated in public and it's the most aroused I ever was. I intoxicated myself by the smell of worn clothes while invited into people's homes. The overwhelming nature of my sexual urges takes all hope from me. I am completely powerless over this. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Voyeurism and exhibitionism. Incestuous and pedophilic slash hebophilic fantasies. Breaking perceived taboo. Admitting to this only reinforces my desire to kill myself. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? To my brother, you ruined my life. You didn't intend to, but you did. And for that, I will never forgive you. What, if anything, do you wish for? Receiving love and sharing intimate moments with somebody without wanting to jump out of my skin with shame, fear, and anxiety. Have you shared these things with others? I shared this with a therapist. It did not go over well. He emphasized the ruminating on my past did not help my current situation, what uh, ultimately led to me ending the sessions. How do you feel after writing these things down, alone, completely and utterly alone? Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wish I knew you. Nobody will ever understand. I recognized what happened to you, and I feel your pain. Um, buddy, I just want to give you a hug, man. Um. I'm so sorry that you experienced that stuff that you experienced. And I'm so sorry that you feel so much shame about the stuff that's going on um, in your head. And I'm really sorry that this therapist um, didn't seem to, in my opinion, understand anything about sexual trauma. And um, I know maybe they do, but it sounds to me like, you should try a therapist that specializes in um, treating people who experienced childhood sexual abuse um, because it's a very specific thing and um, there really needs to be a deep level of trust between the therapist and the and the client when you're dealing with something that heavy where trust has been that shattered and the self-esteem and self-hatred is so, so deep and profound. And I also think a support group um, for having experienced sex abuse or um, being a sex addict. Um, I don't know if it if you are a sex addict, but it, it um, I don't know. But I'm sending you some love, man. I'm sending you some love. Um, we are not our wounds. This is a happy moment filled out. I love this one. This is filled out by um, book nerd Jen. And she writes, In college, my roommates and I used to play a lot of Halo 2 online. One evening while waiting for the next round to start, we were listening to music. More specifically, we were listening to the song Freshman by the Verve Pipe. With no prompt, all four of us in the room started singing along. We weren't just singing along, but belting out the song like we were channeling fucking Freddie Mercury at the top of our lungs. Uh, as we were singing, it felt so cathartic. For a couple of minutes, I didn't care when anyone thought of me. Plus, I loved these people, and the music made that connection feel even more amazing. When the song ended, we were still in the game's waiting room with some other 
online players, and the TV erupted with laughter. We had forgotten that we were using microphones and everyone in the game heard us. We all started laughing with them, totally unembarrassed. Then, as the laughter died down, my friend Chris confessed that he was recording his mic. He proceeded to play his rendition of Freshman. It was so awful. His voice cracked, he was completely out of key, and accompanied by our faint, awful, out-of-key voices in the background. It was done with such confidence and emotion. We started laughing all over again until we cried. Now we knew what the people online in our waiting room really heard, and it was epic. I remember looking around the room and thinking, I will never forget this moment. The smiles on everyone's faces and the sound of our laughter. We were so happy, carefree, and I felt so loved. These were my people. We never went bar hopping in college. We all would rather stay home, play games, and just be with each other. We don't see each other often anymore, but there is a bond that will always be there. When we are together, no matter how long ago the last time was, it's like we never parted. These people helped me get into treatment for depression and anxiety. They were my best healers. Now every time I hear that song, I think of them. Sometimes when I hear it, I can't help but smile and laugh and cry all at the same time. It feels beautiful, even as the tears and snot run down my face. I'm crying now and loving it. Wow. Could have ended on that one. But we have more darkness. This is um, this is filled out by Bob, and this was the uh, survey, Young Male Abused by Older Female. And um, he writes, uh, When I was in first grade, my babysitter took me into the bathroom and put my penis in her anus. I remember her sitting on top of me and sliding up and down. I remember the smell a little bit. I remember her wiping the filth off of my penis with a towel. The babysitter was about 15. Uh, I didn't realize I was molested until I happened to tell my girlfriend uh, this when I was in graduate school. I told my mother about this soon after, and she didn't want to talk about it, even though she's a psychiatrist. Jesus Christ. She was just glad the babysitter was a girl. Oh, that makes me so angry. Anyway, it has definitely had an effect on me. The memory turns me on to this day. Soon after the incident, I started dreaming about naked women and wanted to see naked women. I started watching porn in earnest uh, and in college. Uh, I realized that I liked straight porn with lots of anal, anal. I found that I liked the porn stars that do the more extreme anal with gaping and prolapsing and extreme insertions the best. Big surprise. Remembering these feelings, remembering these things, what feelings come up? Sexual excitement, regret that this happened to me, gratitude that I have found a way as an adult to be beholden to this event from the past or the lust it awakened within me. That's so odd to me that, that, that he would feel grateful uh, about that. Uh, do you feel damage was done? It was damaging. I also felt that it led me to porn. Um, and outside of this uh, event, uh, he's never been sexually abused. And, buddy, I just want to, I just want to send you some love, man. The, the ignorance of your mother, who's a fucking psychiatrist, that she was glad that the babysitter was a girl. 
And I hope you know, Bob, if you're if you're a regular listener, that um, many of us who experienced trauma, experienced sexual excitement and recalling it, even though it scarred our souls, and that it's this weird fucking thing that our brain does, and that you shouldn't feel ashamed, even though we all do. This is an awfulsome moment, um, and this one's pretty heavy. And then I promise, oh no, <laughs> there's one more dark one. Um, yeah, this one is dark, but it's it's uh, it's not sexual dark. Uh, this is filled out by Dancing on My Grave, and she's a teenager, and she writes, Today, I had a particularly interesting purge. It was my first real big binge in a while, and I, and I had driven 60 in a 30 the whole way home so I could get it out of my system as soon as possible. As I knelt next to the toilet, repeatedly jamming my fingers down my throat, they got, well, gooey from touching all the vomit. Ew, TMI, I know. So every time I put them back down my throat, the vomit goo from my hands got all over the area of my face around my mouth. And would you believe it, my first thought upon getting the vomit all over my face was, I wonder if vomit is good for skin. I imagined prepackaged packets of vomit being bought in Sephora's across the country. Vomit face masks, the new beauty craze sweeping the nation. The mental image of the whole thing sent me bursting out laughing, and I fell, naked, vomit-covered, on the bathroom floor. What did I do next? Prematurely finish my purge? flush the toilet, clean myself up, and googled, is vomit good for your skin? My vanity has reached an all-time high. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Your guy's honesty just, oh man, it means so much to me. Even though so much of this stuff is so painful to hear, it is... It just it just um, connects us. It just connects us. This is an awfulsome moment, um, and there's nothing funny about this one at all. Um, and it's hard to read, but I feel like um, this this just needs to. Uh, it's so disturbing, but it needs to be. It needs to be read. This is by Jax, and uh, she's in her 40s. And she writes, I finally summoned the courage at nine years old to ask him why he was doing this to me. I tried sneaking out of the house every morning early to get to school without him calling me into their bedroom when mom was still not home from the graveyard shift. Dave made me call him daddy. In the bedroom, he would go down on me when I was six to nine years old. He would get off when he made me spasm. Sometimes he snuck into my bedroom at night to do this. He would force me to lick and touch his dick. Why are you doing this to me, Daddy? The words barely came out, were almost whispered, and his answer, because I love you. Finally, the rage that could never rise above the horror, the disgust and shame, shot to the surface. No way he didn't see my face change. Filled with resolve. Fucker, that's not love. Asshole. 
I went to school, I came home, I got the bike and started down the steep, steep hill we lived on. I waited for a car at the bottom, then raced down and hit it. Flying over and hitting the ground, I split my nine-year-old head open, concussion, fractured skull, 225 stitches in three layers in intensive care. He never came to the hospital. He knew why I did it. He later saw in my eyes my found courage, power, and rage. He never touched me again. I don't even know what to say. But Jax, I I just want you to know that we... I feel cheesy saying this, but we were your witnesses. We all need somebody to witness. You know, when I when I was going through my thing and uh, Dr. Zucker happened to be the guest, she was my witness and I knew how much it meant to me and I and I hope that you're in therapy and you have a witness that you see on a regular basis. But if you don't, we know what happened to you and we are we are not going to turn away from the discomfort of your story and that's what i want this podcast to be is the place where nothing is too too dark so often i hear people in their surveys say, I don't want to bum other people out. I don't want to bring other people down, you know. It would be cruel to them to put that image in their head of the thing I had to experience, but we need we need that witness. And um, sending you love, man. Sending you love. And finally, a happy moment. And this is uh, filled out by Sledding on Flat Ground. And she writes, I'm in therapy working on making healthier decisions and romantic partners. I've unearthed a whole host of childhood issues and traumas that have led me down the path of being a codependent with a significant fear of intimacy and lack of trust. My fear of intimacy runs so deep that I have never been able to have a successful long-term relationship and I'm almost 40. I've dated and come up short. I've kept men around for long periods of time, but was basically just having sex. And one time I was in a relationship that led to an engagement, but there was so much emotional connection lacking that we broke it off. I have been in therapy on and off since my 20s and have been through numerous therapists, but this is the first time I've ever made this much progress. I attributed this I attribute this to my wonderful therapist. She is an active participant in my sessions. She seems to remember every detail of everything I tell her, so I never have to repeat a story or thought, and she is the first ever emotional mirror that I've experienced. Even though I've been to therapy before for years, I've come to realize the value of quality therapy more than ever before, thanks to my wonderful therapist. So the other day in our session, I was telling her how uh, how highly I think of her 
and before I could get the whole sentence out, I started crying. She held me there, not literally, in that moment, and asked what was going on for me. I had trouble verbalizing the intense feelings I was having, but I said, I just get emotional when I tell someone I really care for them. She just smiled, and I think I saw her eyes get a little misty. I asked her half-jokingly, but mostly it was a legitimate question, if this was what intimacy feels like, and she said yes. That is a witness. That is... She was witnessed. The power of being witnessed. The power of being witnessed. I've experienced it, and it is fucking amazing and beautiful. And it helps. It helps lighten some of that heavy. And if any of you are out there, and you're sitting in your secret, in your shame... Please find somebody who's safe to share it with. Please, please do it. You can start off, if you don't want to do it with somebody in person, start off by sharing it in the forum. Fill out a survey. Email us. But just do it. Don't don't sit there trying to battle it on your own. It's just too much. And and life is life is too short to go through just suffering alone. You know? It is. And here's the other cool thing is when you have somebody that witnesses your pain, there's a pretty good chance they're gonna share something with you and you'll get to witness theirs, and that is a really, really cool bond. And the deepest friendships that I have today are based on those moments and it's awesome so I hope you heard something today that uh, connected with you that made you uh, feel less alone and that reminded you that there's help and there's hope and um, you are not alone and thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.